Our New Testament scripture reading this Lord's Day is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus a curse, that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are differences of administrations but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another divers kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? And now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together having given more abundant honor to that part 
which lacks, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, health, government, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. The Lord bless his word this day as it has been read and shall be read and as it shall be preached. Our text for this Lord's Day is found in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, where we read these words. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. The Jewish people in general rejected their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their leaders judged him worthy of death before their Sanhedrins. The Apostle Paul, himself a Jew, and a Jew from the strictest set or sect of Judaism, namely the Pharisees, fervently prays for the salvation of the Jews with the deepest longing and desire imaginable in Romans chapter 9. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through the first part of verse 4. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul goes on to explain in Romans chapter 11 that God is not finished with his ancient people Israel. For although there presently exists and remains a judicial blindness over the eyes of the greater part of Israel due to the hatred that they continue to have for their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, there is coming a time 
in which that blindness will be divinely removed and Israel as a people will come and with tears embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah. And then they will become themselves a catalyst in bringing the nations unto the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> David Brown has looked to that glorious future event with these words. And oh, when they see that blood which as a nation they have murderously shed, turned into a fountain opened themselves for sin and for uncleanness. When they find their robes washed and made white in that very blood of the Lamb, how will they water a free pardon with their tears? How they will be disposed to explain to their Gentile brethren everywhere, Come here, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. What a glorious day that will be. Was Jesus Christ Israel's Messiah, as he claimed? Do the Old Testament scriptures, which even the Jews themselves acknowledge to be God's inspired revelation, give sufficient testimony as to the identity of the Messiah? That is our mission today. Let us seek to answer the following three questions this Sabbath day. First, who is this son in Proverbs 30, verse 4? Second, what are the offices given to this son? And thirdly, is this son in Proverbs 30, verse 4, the Christ of the New Testament scriptures? Who is this son, first of all, that we find in Proverbs 30, verse 4? One of the supreme reasons Jews reject Jesus Christ as their Messiah, even today, is due to Christ's claim to be the Son of God. In John chapter 19, verse 7, when Christ appeared before the Sanhedrin of the Jews, The Jews responded and said, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. They certainly did say that when they appeared before their Sanhedrin. This particular account also, uh, it should be noted, was before Pilate, however. The Jews of that time rightly understood, dear ones, Christ's claim to be the Son of God was not a claim wherein Christ made himself inferior to God the Father in nature, in power, or in glory. But rather, it was a claim wherein he made himself equal to God the Father in nature in power and in glory. 
in John 5.18, the Jews clearly understood what Jesus meant by calling God his Father in a very unique way, thereby calling himself the Son of God in a very unique way. John 5.18 Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, notice, making himself equal with God. You see, there was the claim of Christ to be the Son of God presented major theological problems to the blinded minds of the Jews. How can God be one, as stated in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, <coughs> and yet have a son with the same divine nature. Furthermore, how can the infinite God, who is spirit, as to his essence and as to his being, how can such a one be standing bodily before us with a back that has been beaten to a bloody pulp and with a skull that wears a bloody crown of thorns? How can this be God? Jewish Sanhedrin cried out, He speaks blasphemy. <clears throat> he has committed a crime worthy of death. And dear ones, apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, they still cry out that such a view of the Son of God is blasphemous. If, however, Israel as a people had understood then and now, their own scriptures, they would have had more than sufficient warrant to believe and receive Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as their Messiah. As did even a believing remnant from within Israel. For God did not hide from them their Messiah in the scriptures of the Old Testament as we shall see. And so the sermon today, dear ones, is intended certainly to show how Israel was blinded to that which was very clear in the Old Testament scriptures, but it's also intended to show how merciful and gracious God has been to you to open your eyes that you not reject the Messiah that was blinded to them. As we consider Proverbs 30, verse 4, it should be noted that these are the inspired words of Agur, the son of Jacob, a prophet concerning whom we know nothing else than what is recorded here. Although Agur is a prophet, that is, the very mouthpiece of God, notice he does not exalt himself with pride, but truly recognizes his own inherent corruption and limited knowledge of the Holy One. Look with me. Proverbs 30, verses 2 and 3, where Agur says, Surely I am more brutish than any man, and have not the understanding of a man. 
I neither learned wisdom, wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy, that is, knowledge of the Holy One, of God. <clears throat> How we must continually hear the words of God through the Apostle Paul, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth, 1 Corinthians 8.1. Or again in 1 Corinthians 13.2, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. The passage that we have just read are not disparaging knowledge of the truth, but rather knowledge of the truth that is proud and self-absorbed. A knowledge that is more concerned with how others are impressed by one's knowledge than how others are built up and edified by one's knowledge. Agur is careful to point out his own inherent ignorance so that God receives all of the glory for the wisdom that now proceeds from his lips. Jonathan Edwards aptly pointed out how that when a Christian grows in grace, he tends to see more and more of his own imperfection, more and more of his own corruption, more and more of his, his own uh, uh, imperfection and ignorance. He says this, True grace is of that nature that the more a person has of it with remaining corruption, the less does his goodness and holiness appear in proportion not only to his past but present deformity. In the sin that now appears in his heart and in the abominable defects of his highest and best affection. This was what Agur was saying, in effect, though a prophet, I see how weak, how ignorant, how corrupt I am by nature. It is only and always the grace of God. And I only can prophesy because God has put these words of wisdom within my heart. Is it any wonder that Agor or any man is without knowledge of the Holy One? that is, inherently and naturally without knowledge of the Holy One? Is it any wonder that that's the case when we consider how great this Holy One is? For consider the infinite greatness of God, this Holy One, in the four following questions that we find here. First of all, in verse 4, Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? <coughs> I, uh, that the uh, word or there, uh, who hath ascended up into heaven or descended, I would submit that perhaps a better translation is simply the word and, <clears throat> as it is normally used in the scriptures, the Old Testament. Who hath ascended up into heaven and descended? The answer, no mere man can do this, but God can, for he is not bound by such spatial limitations. 
And this is true especially of God the Son, for Christ uses this, uses this very same or similar language in John 3.13, where we read, <clears throat> And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. <clears throat> it is as if Christ said here in John 3.13 no man has gone up but he that came down even he was at, at one and the same time both up and down you see this is pointing out Christ as to his divine nature that he was omnipresent that he was all places at the same time, without boundaries, without limitations as to space. So the first question that Agur asks, who hath descended up into heaven and descended? No mere man, God alone. Secondly, who hath gathered the wind in his fists? The answer Certainly no mere man, but God alone again. You see, this is a figure of speech or a picture of the almighty power of God who controls the very strongest winds, as it were, by merely opening his fist or closing his fist. Someone who can control hurricanes and tornadoes by simply that according to this picture, is one who is omnipotent, all-powerful, the one true living God. The third question, who hath bound the waters in a garment? The answer, again, no mere man. But God is able to do so. Here, garment signifies the clouds of heaven in which waters are bound by God, according to Job 38. Verses 8 through 11. He binds up the waters and, and brings the waters as he wills. He sends the rain and every drop that falls from heaven is a drop that falls from God's garment, as it were. And if it's a torrential flood, it comes because God opens up his garment in heaven. And fourthly, who hath established all the ends of the earth? The answer, again, certainly no mere man. For God alone has set the boundaries of this earth. He has determined how far the seas will flow. He has established the mountains and even all the inhabitants upon the face of the earth to the, the most extreme parts of the earth. He has established and set boundaries over them. <clears throat> now we come to the fifth question in Proverbs 30 verse 4 what is his name and what is his son's name if thou canst tell who can do all of these mighty acts tell me if you can what is his name or his son's name no mere man can do all these things but tell the name of him who can 
in the name of his son. Tell me the name of him who can in the name of his son. Dear ones, here, the father and the son are united by way of the same divine nature. Because what he has just asked by way of questions is not said to be true of simply the one who can do so and not the son. But it is said of both of them, the father and the son. And so we see here the father and the son having the same nature, having the same power and glory. Here we see the unity of God. And yet we see here the distinction of the persons within that one God, at least two of those personal distinctions, the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned, but we do also affirm the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit as well is the third person of that blessed trinity. You see here, dear ones, there is no inferiority implied when saying what is his name or his son's name, but rather an equality in power and glory. Thus I would submit that here in Proverbs 30, verse 4, Israel as a people had a reference point to the Son of God given to them. One who was from all eternity equal in power and glory with the Father, but from all eternity distinguished from the Father as His Son. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are indeed one God as taught in Deuteronomy 6.4. And yet God reveals in the scriptures that this one God eternally and necessarily exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Consider the following passages in the Old Testament scriptures which reveal this incomprehensible truth concerning our God. And obviously there, there are many. I'm just going to draw your attention to a couple. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, for a moment. Here we find a a prophecy concerning the restoration of Israel, how God will deliver them when it just appears that they are at the point of extinction, being completely uh, wiped out by their enemies. And God will come, and he will bring upon Israel a spirit of mourning and grief and sorrow. And here we find out what that sorrow and that grief has reference to. I'll begin with verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced as they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now that's not a 
a mistranslation, the word me. It is found in the Hebrew Scriptures. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now, who is the me? Well, who's speaking here? Who has been speaking throughout this particular chapter? Is it the prophet that is referred to, that they'll look upon me, the prophet, who's been pierced? No, it can't be the prophet. Uh, will it, is it Israel themselves? Well, it's not Israel that's going to look upon Israel, whom Israel has pierced. It must be something or someone other than Israel. <clears throat> if you still simply want to follow through this chapter, and again, I won't take the time, but from verse 1, very clearly it begins, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, that is Jehovah. And then in verse 2, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. <clears throat> verse 3, In that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. In verse 4, In that Day saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment. <clears throat> in verse 6, In that day will I make the governors of Judah like and heart the fire among the wood. <clears throat> verse 9, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations. Verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David. And they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced. Here is a very clear reference in the Hebrew Scriptures that Jehovah would be pierced. How can that be? Jehovah is an infinite spirit. It's through the Incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Jehovah God, who would become Israel's Messiah. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, 1 says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. John 1, 11. He came to Israel as a Savior to deliver them from their sins, but what did they do? They condemned him to death for claiming to be the Son of God and had him pierced through. And after he had breathed his last breath, he was pierced by the Roman guards. Here we find this same son referred to in Proverbs 30, verse 4, who would come to be Israel's Messiah. He would be pierced, but he who would be pierced was Jehovah God. Consider also a second prophecy concerning the Son of God in Isaiah 9 6. <clears throat> Again, I submit that these are simply intended to illustrate 
what many, many other passages in the Old, Old Testament scriptures do prove and demonstrate. That the Son of God and the claims of Jesus Christ to be the Son of God were exactly what were prophesied to occur within the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. Isaiah 9.6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Here is a son given to save Israel, who is called the Mighty God. This is the same uh, phrase, identical phrase, as is used one chapter later in Isaiah 10.21, where it says, The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. (coughs) He is also called the everlasting Father which does not mean that the Father and the Son are the same person, but rather that the Son of God is a Father to His people from all eternity. The Son of God is not in a Father-Son relationship, as it were, with His own Father, but He has that relationship with His people in caring for them, in preserving them, in providing for them, in redeeming and governing them. As we see, the same term is used of Joseph in Genesis 45.8, where we find Joseph saying, speaking here to his brethren, who now know who he is, he's revealed his identity to them, and he says, so now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. You see, that's the sense in which it is used in Isaiah 9-6, when it says that he is the everlasting father to his people, not to his father, or not, not that he is one person with the father. But note here that this son is everlasting. He is the everlasting father. He is eternal. Just as we find in Isaiah chapter 40, the same word, everlasting, used Many times in the Old Testament, but here is again one case in point. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. You see, dear ones, if it were not for the spiritual blindness of Israel, they could not have failed to understand that their Messiah would be the eternal Son of the living God. 
come in flesh to redeem them. They would not have missed that. They were not blind, but they were blinded to that particular truth. (coughs) Dear ones, do you have eyes to see what Israel in her blindness did not see concerning the Son of God? How blessed you are to see, for it is not due to your wisdom or your knowledge, as Agur says, but due to God's mercy and grace who gave you sight. Let us fervently pray that this spiritual blindness that pervades uh, Israel at this time may soon be removed from their eyes, that they may come to their Messiah, whom they falsely condemned to death for blasphemy. Let us move on then to the second main point. What are the offices given to the Son? As we consider the same scriptures to which Israel of old had access, we see that their Messiah, whom we have already identified as the Son of God, would function as a mediator between God and man in order to bring reconciliation between a holy God and sinful man. As mediator on behalf of his people, whom he would save from sin and death and hell, the Messiah, which is the Hebrew equivalent to Christ, which simply means the anointed one. The Messiah holds the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Now, were these offices foretold of old concerning the Messiah? Or did they simply come as a result of New Testament revelation? Because in the New Testament, we clearly see Jesus Christ referred to as a prophet, priest, and king, and carrying on those particular functions and those offices. Well, let us consider that, first of all, the Messiah holds the office of prophet, as was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15. There we hear these words. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Moses is speaking, obviously. Like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. Here we see that a prophet, likened to Moses, is predicted to arise from among Israel, from among the brethren. He is to be a Jew, an Israelite. Moses holds a special status amongst the prophets of God, as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's quite a statement that is made concerning Moses. Deuteronomy 34, beginning with verse 10. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and the wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and in all that mighty hand, and in all the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of all Israel. 
This cannot refer, therefore, to just uh, another prophet that arose from within Israel in light of the words that we've just read. This has to be a prophet that far surpasses even Moses himself, since no other prophet, it says, arose within Israel like Moses, who knew God face to face and performed the wonders that Moses performed. Here was the Lord Jesus is said to be in John 1, 1 again, the very word of God. <clears throat> by whom God communicates His will. By whom God communicates His righteousness and truth. And all of His attributes are seen, His glorious seen in His Son. And you recall that it was from on top of that mountain of transfiguration, when the Lord Jesus was transfigured before His disciples. Though Moses and Elijah were present with the Lord Jesus as He was transfigured, it was not the Word of God the Father to the effect, listen, to Moses and listen to Elijah, but hear him, the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. You see, Peter was getting all wrapped up in building a tabernacle, something, a dwelling for, for all three of them. And it would appear that perhaps these words came especially to say... Don't try and put Moses and Elijah on the same level with the Son of God. He is the supreme prophet. Hear him. Listen to him. <clears throat> of course, unbelieving Israel will not recognize this prophet that is spoken of here in Deuteronomy 18.15 to be Jesus Christ. But it is clear to those whose eyes have been illuminated that this refers to Christ, who not only performed even greater miracles than Moses. Uh, Moses did not raise the dead. Jesus Christ did. In fact, he raised himself from the dead. <clears throat> but predicting also, Jesus predicted the very destruction of Jerusalem and the temple within Jerusalem in Luke 21. You see, back in Deuteronomy 18, how were they to tell and what test did God give them if a prophet claims to be a prophet, whether they should listen to him or not? Well, God says in verse 22, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. In other words, that which he prophesies concerning doesn't come to pass. But Jesus Christ prophesied and predicted the very destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It came to pass within a generation. He prophesied his own resurrection. It came to pass, just as he said it would. 
In fact, his whole ministry was based upon his resurrection. We'll talk more about that in a moment. The second office the Messiah is said to hold in the Old Testament is that of a priest. In Psalm 110.4, listen to the words. Of David, where it says, This is a psalm of David. Listen to the very words that are said, that are spoken here. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek means literally king of righteousness. Thus, this absolutely unique priest would also be a king, something basically unheard of in the Old Testament. Unlike any other Levitical priest. Furthermore, this priest will be a priest forever, which rules out mere mortal priests who die and remain in the grave. Do not the New Testament scriptures declare Jesus Christ to be such a priest? For this priest, after the order of Melchizedek, offered his own life, dear ones, as the sacrifice of all sacrifices in order to once and for all atone for the sins of his elect. According to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, where we see this this priestly ministry of Christ very clearly indicated. Where it says, Who needeth not daily as those high himself. As a priest, he offered himself up as that sacrifice. <coughs> and dear ones, as an everlasting priest, he is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to him, for he ever liveth to make intercession for them ever liveth to make intercession according to Hebrews 7.25. Have you not only heard today, dear ones, that Jesus Christ is such a priest? Have you done more than merely hear this wondrous truth as it comes from this pulpit, as it comes from your parents or from friends? Have you done more than simply here? Have you received and come to this high priest? Have you come and received him alone for your eternal salvation, his righteousness, his forgiveness, and his life? He invites all those who know they are ungodly today to come unto him. Any who say, no, I'm not ungodly, you're prohibited from coming to Christ. Only those who affirm and acknowledge they're ungodly are invited to come to Christ today. So if you fall into that category, Christ invites you to come unto him and to receive forgiveness and righteousness and life. The third office from the Old Testament which the Messiah holds is that of a king. And I would ask you to turn the passage we looked at a moment ago, Isaiah chapter 9, and we read verse 6, 
which identifies this person as the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But notice what verse 7 says. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let us notice that it is upon the shoulders of this one, the mighty God, the child who would be born, who is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, upon his shoulders that the government of God's kingdom is laid. Did not Christ at his trial make it abundantly clear that he was this king appointed by God to rule over his people Israel? over God's kingdom. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus in response to Pilate's question in John 18, verses 36 through 37. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. It doesn't originate Uh, and find its authority from within this world. It comes from heaven above, Jesus is saying. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Dear ones, he proclaimed that he was the king that was prophesied long ago. And he certainly demonstrated his kingly authority, his royal prerogative and authority, and that he did not remain in the grave so as to undergo the corruption of death, but rather rose victoriously over death as king of kings going forth to conquer all of his enemies, even death itself. The Jews of Christ's time could not explain away the resurrection of Christ, nor can they do so even now. He is risen. The tomb is empty. They did not find the body of Jesus Christ because it was not there. Every attempt that has been made to disprove the resurrection of Christ is proven to be absolutely futile. The disciples, dear ones, could not have stolen the the body of Christ from that grave, for there was a Roman guard situated at that particular grave. The tomb was sealed. How could they have remained asleep while they rolled away a stone and took the body? To fall asleep was to incur the death penalty. Roman soldiers would not have fallen asleep on such uh, an assignment. The, The disciples, furthermore, didn't have the courage. They had fled. They had run in haste. They were afraid. They were cowards. And all of a sudden, they had the courage to come and to roll the stone away so that the soldiers who were camped right around it could not could not uh, hear them. And to do this, 
knowing that to do so on their parts would bring about their own death. Dear ones, the answer is that the grave is empty because Jesus rose from the grave. And he will, by his power and by his grace, dear ones, subdue the enemies within and without. He will usher in his kingdom of peace by means of a gospel of peace. The last main point, very briefly, is this. It's in the form of a question again. Is this son in Proverbs 30, verse 4, the Christ of the New Testament? Yes, without equivocation, this son addressed in Proverbs 30, verse 4, is the Christ of the New Testament. He is the Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the Gentiles. And I want to give to you in closing, and again, this could be multiplied, but I just want to give to you three Particulars that point to Christ being this Messiah in the New Testament. Consider the time in which this Messiah was to come to the earth and to live. Because that is told and given to us in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, where it, is, where it says that God has appointed 70 weeks for his people Israel in which to accomplish very specific things. <clears throat> Namely, <clears throat> to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. I would take that to mean to anoint the most holy one, which Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit, as the scripture teaches. And he did accomplish these things by his death and by his resurrection. The weeks that are referred there to in Daniel chapter 9 70 weeks are not 70 weeks of days for we cannot point nor can the Jews point to anything that happened within approximately a year and a half of this uh, of this prophecy at this particular period of history these are weeks of years not weeks of days similar to what we find in Ezekiel chapter 4 verses 6 through 7 where very clearly there God says that he is appointing a year for each day. And so from the time in which Israel was allowed to rebuild Jerusalem, from that, the point of that decree, to the coming of the Messiah would be, according to our passage here in Daniel chapter 9, 69 weeks, and in the middle of the last week, which is seven years, one week, seven years, in the middle of that, he would be cut off, which Christ's ministry was about three and a half years from the time that he appeared as Messiah, proclaiming himself to be Israel's Messiah. He was cut off in the middle of that week, was crucified. Furthermore, we find here 
that the coming of the Messiah would come before the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple in this passage as well, which was also accomplished, as God said, in verse 27, line 27. Here we see, dear ones, we find a timeline for the Messiah's coming given to us in the same scriptures which the Jews had access to. But they were blinded. Blinded as a people to not even be able to see that Christ was their Messiah. Another quick point, where was the Messiah to be born? The scriptures in the Old Testament tell us that. We're told in Micah 5.2 where Christ was to be born. Listen there. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, that, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This ruler, this Messiah, will come forth, be born in Bethlehem, but whose goings forth have been from everlasting. Again, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling prophecy. Now, all of these things cannot be mere coincidences. These are all the fulfillment of God's decree, God's prophecy that he has given in the Old Testament scriptures. And what was he to suffer? Again, I would simply refer you to Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18, and Zechariah 12:10 to see the very specific nature of his suffering, crucifixion, being pierced, and many other things that are mentioned there. But let me just read for you the verses in Psalm 22, beginning with verse 16. Messianic Psalm. For dogs have compassed me. <clears throat> the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Refers again to the crucifixion, the uh, form of Roman uh, punishment, which did not exist at that particular period in time in which this, this was prophecy was made. And so it refers to a type of punishment that would come in the future by way of nailing someone's hands and feet to a cross. Continues, I may tell or count all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. <clears throat> These are not mere coincidences, dear ones, as we see them per perfectly fulfilled in the New Testament in the person of Israel's Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they rejected, who is our Savior. We could go on and on with many such prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ, but we won't. Sufficient, I believe, has been demonstrated to indicate very clearly Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. He is the promised Messiah. He is alive. And he is calling, dear ones, even now. He's the one referred to in Proverbs 34 as the Son. Israel turned its back upon this Son. 
upon their Messiah, will you do the same today? Will you turn your back upon him and suffer everlasting judgment from God for not believing his testimony concerning his son? He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God, even to as many as believe on his name. The invitation goes forth today. This is the one God sent to be the Redeemer of man. Where is your confidence? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? The Lord says, to you today hear him let us stand in prayer our heavenly father we do glory in the fact that our eyes have been opened that we are not like Israel of old whose, whose minds and eyes were closed but O oh Lord our God we do look forward to that time and thou will yet open the minds and the eyes of Israel so that they will embrace, they will go forth <coughs> and the spirit of mourning and grieving and weeping will overcome them as they consider that they have slaughtered and had put to death their own Messiah who came to save them from their sin and offered his blood, his life as an atonement for his elect people. We pray, our Father, that Thou would uh, give to us great encouragement this day, that Thou wilt, even as Thou did for, uh, fulfill all of those prophecies concerning Christ's coming uh, the first time, that Thou wilt fulfill all of the prophecies concerning uh, Christ's coming to His people Israel and coming to the nations of this world to draw all into Himself. Let us, Lord, therefore not give way to fear and doubt. Let us not, O oh Lord our God, trust in human resources, but let us look to the mighty God who accomplishes such purposes through means which the world considers to be foolish, even the preaching of the gospel. Let us, however, Father, be faithful, trusting Thee that Thou wilt bring forth a seed in which the Lord Jesus will delight. For we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D 
M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.